Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Car Chat Podcast. And with me today, I have Frank Stephenson. Hi, Frank. Hello, Sam. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Can you tell the audience, for those that don't know who you are, a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, my name is Frank, Frank Stephenson. I sound very American, I guess, but I've probably become the most international American you've ever met because I was born... (laughs) Born and raised in Morocco, Casablanca, Morocco, and grew up uh, in a mixed culture family, obviously, in a mixed cultured environment. I guess that is a reason, a bit of or part of the reason why I am kind of doing what I am doing, not in the artistic or or automotive sense, but in just my general outlook on life. Uh, Up until the age of 11, like I said, I lived in Casablanca, then uh, our whole family moved to Istanbul and spent the next uh, almost to my graduation of high school in in Turkey in Istanbul then we moved over to Madrid my last year of high school graduated from there in the me- meantime in the 60s my father had already started a car dealership in southern spain so i was kind of destined to go there after graduation, I didn't obviously want to start working right away. So I got into a bit of racing, uh, off-road racing, motocross, and fairly successful at that. So I was um, moving up very quickly to the professional level and got hired by a Japanese company to be a factory rider and did the world championships for a number of years and uh, never won a race. So my father recommended that I just basically back out of it Mm. ASAP. Not that he didn't like that I was doing it. We're both crazy about racing and and engines and everything about that side of the the business, but it was just made more sense to concentrate and focus my life on, on moving uh, in a complete different direction. So obviously I got into design and through art center college of design in California, got my degree and moved over to Europe. So 
in a nutshell, I'm a car designer. I design cars. I've been doing it for the last 30, 30 years or plus. And I've moved on now in the last couple of years to my own design business and designing pretty much everything that, that uh, has to have a look and feel to it that is innovative. Yeah. You, <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. I draw. <laughs> <laughs> you have designed some of my, some of my favorite cars, actually. Uh, I have. The, and, and just loads that stand out as sort of, I sort of now think is like iconic, even though they had a previous oh. iconic. So like okay. yeah. the, the redo of the Fit, Fit 500, like mm. just a great designed car and the Mini as well. Yeah. Like when yeah. I was, I'm 32. Uh-huh. So when I was like 16, 17, 18, that yeah. was when that came out. And it was yeah. the car that like everyone wanted a Mini. Everyone yeah. wanted that shape. Um yeah, I was, so one of the things I want to ask you, so you've headed up a few design departments as director yeah. um, at various places, Ford, Ferrari, McLaren. And what does a design director do? Like, uh, we really do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, keep going. If, if... Yeah, just because like, I know I had, the idea, I had the idea in my head of you sitting there and you're sketching out these you know, designs of the cars yeah. and stuff, but I imagine that's not actually everything, you know, You've got a big team uh, of people. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, it's a good question. Obviously what happens in a design studio and what, what, what does everybody kind of do? And does the design studio director, does the, the head of design uh, actually do any work at all, except just <laughs> watch everybody. I mean, we're all different. Every, every design director has his way of designing, his way of managing, his way of turning out good work and, and all that. So I, I seem to have realized over the years I'm a little bit different than most design directors in the sense that I am probably most, as you scale up, as you, as you go up the ladder of design, obviously at the beginning, you're just, uh, you're almost a number. If you're in a big studio, you know, you just, you're, 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 you're not that you're not anybody, but basically there are a lot of young designers fighting to get their designs off of the paper and onto a clay model and into production. That's what your, your whole life's been geared towards doing. And at some point, you know, the more success you have, the obviously you get recognized and you start to move up the ladder and you start getting more responsibility. So at the end of the, or at the top of the ladder, the, the last run is basically you're running the studio we're running the design direction for the company and it can be different between whether you're running the design studio of a huge OEM or if you're running a, a specialist, very limited edition or low volume manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So your responsibilities pretty much uh, uh, vary according to that size of your, of the company and the size of your design team. Now I've, I've done all of it. So I've been with the huge companies, you know, Fiat is massive and, um, Ferrari is tiny and McLaren's even tinier. So pretty much the whole spectrum. But what I can say is that, like I said at the beginning, designers have their own approach. I preferably or, or, or prefer the uh, hands-on approach. So I like to get in and, and be in the studio, not sat in an office outside of the design studio. I need to feel the pulse, I guess you could say, of the uh, not only the, the team, but actually the model itself. The more you live with the product, the more you start speaking the same language and, and there's this sort of a osmosis or thing going on between you and the product itself. You start talking to each other without words kind of thing. So mm. being in the studio is much preferable for me. And I know a lot of design managers and, and guys prefer just to walk in on, on days when presentations happen, but there's a disconnect in the whole design process when, when I've seen that happen 
and and you don't really get to know the product or the uh, the designers in a way that that you do if you're working on a day to day basis with them directly. So, I, I it might be a disadvantage. I, I usually end up being like you know another designer in the studio just because the kind of relationships I like to form with the team where we're we're on a one to one where not that you lose respect, you always gain respect through your credibility and experience, I guess. And then you've been there and done that kind of approach, but it's, I, I, I seem to, to enjoy more and get great results from a team that sort of consider me, you know, not, not, I mean, obviously the boss, but not so much like a boss per se, just a guy that yeah. can uh, sort of like the big brother who also happens to be the boss. So that's my approach. I, I look over their shoulders. I give suggestions. I love to sketch you know, I, I'm old school, so I don't sit down at a computer and turn out these awesome Photoshop renderings that look real. Um, I kind of like the, when I say old school, I mean like Leonardo da Vinci, a piece of paper and a pen yeah. and scratch the ideas out really quick. And that is a gift in today's world. A lot of the uh, younger students and not our designers, not to criticize them, but you know, that fact that you can go onto a computer and sketch and do all that kind of stuff that we do, but then go back two steps and correct it and go into another direction. You don't have that kind of mercy when you're designing with the pen and paper. So you have to be very communicative, visually communicative with very few lines when you're drawing with a, a big pen and a piece of paper. So yeah, that, that one-to-one interaction in the studio where the design manager doesn't set the trend or the, uh, not the trend, the, the direction of the company in, in, in a way where he stamps it down with a, you know, a stamp and says, this is what we're going to do. He, good ones, I guess, kind to try to get a mixed designer uh, input where everybody has a different idea mm. and you, and you look for the strong design directions. there, the ones that really touch you on the emotional nerve kind of side, because those are the good designs that later, if you have to water it down, which most of the time you always do when you still water it, when you water it down, it still has a lot of that emotional feel to it. So yeah, we, we as design managers, if you want to be safe, you play it safe all your life and you don't really make anything special. It's all turning out just plain vanilla. Mm. But if you, as a strong design director, are able to get strong design themes through, supporting the designers on and off the job because designers get affected outside the job. You know, we're, we're, we're sensitive uh, creatures, artistic, yeah. you know. So anything can affect our, our energy levels. So you got to try to keep the team energy levels up pretty high. So that's, that's also kind of like a football coach, you know, working with the mental side of the team, but it's fun. All of it's fun. And, and when you strike gold with an excellent design, everybody is, is on a high and uh, the whole process is a high. Yeah. I'm rambling now, but what I'm trying to say <laughs> no, is. I had, well, I had a question because you, when you design or draw your initial, initial sort of concept, mm. if you're drawing it, I imagine you have to sort of make it a complete design in one go. Whereas mm. if you're building it on a computer, you sort of like you're building it almost. And then, you, yeah. like you said, you can change bits as, as you go. Yeah. And I imagine your sort of job, I guess, you come up with this, this initial idea and then mm. do, you, do you try and keep that form throughout the process? Absolutely. Or, and is yeah. that probably one of the hardest things? Cause you see yeah. some cars that are, have like disjointed design. <laughs> Perfect word. Yeah. Yeah. They almost come across as modular and, you know, I was responsible for the front module and that guy over there did the yeah, middle exactly. module and that guy was on the, you know, the rear module, that kind of approach, but that is not 
good design. <laughs> um, typically, what we as in, in the design studio, the way I've always structured design projects is we don't even put pen to paper right from the beginning. It's almost pure research. And it sounds like, what? Don't you guys draw? Of course <laughs> we do. But if you don't do your research before you start a project, you really don't know where you're going. It's just floundering with a pen and paper kind of approach. So the main thing is, is basically kind of know where you want to end up at before you start. That's kind of hard to know because we're designing cars that are five years ahead of what we have on the road typically. So you don't really know what customer tastes are going to be like or what materials are going to come in during the process that allow you to to innovate as well as technology. So it's a guessing game, obviously, at the front, at the beginning, but that's what they pay us the big bucks for, is to stretch the imagination such that we are seen as the crazy people. Engineers typically don't like the designers because they make their, their lives a bit too too tough. And when you're lucky, you meet up with an engineer who has that kind of, you know, we can do anything approach. And that's when the sparks fly, the magic happens, obviously, but that is not always the case. So in, in the real world, what you have to do is research at the beginning in the sense of obviously, like I said, knowing where you're going, but what do I have to do to be better than the competition? So what can you do to this vehicle to make it stand out in its, in its segment? There's so many cars on the road today that just to, chuck another design out there makes no sense at all. So the game now or the goal now is to do something that's different than whatever else is in that segment and different, but for a good reason, not just different, make different, make something different is easy, make it different and better is tough. So we start out with basically researching uh, materials, aerodynamic directions in different types of automotive uh, um, sport, basically where you are racing, where you find new solutions and all this has to do with even the most basic car now, because everything is important in today's world of car design, not just, you know, does it look pretty? It has to say, okay, it is aerodynamically more efficient, so it takes less energy to push the car forward. Uh, heavy cars don't, you know, require more energy to push them, so let's try to find new materials. And obviously, you have to stick with a design language that represents the company. You can't just do anything. So there's, it's it's not easy when a new designer joins another company. They have to settle in and try to adjust to this new design language. I I find that when you go from, when I went from Ford to BMW, my first BMWs were just glorized uh, Fords, you know, they, they were, yeah, kind of like a BMW, but it looks like a really nice Ford. So it takes you a moment to, to sort of get into that design language. But yeah, so what you have to do is basically start with that research and not just jump into the sketching part, which is the fun part, obviously. But you got to get all your ingredients and all your ducks in place before you actually start sitting down and drawing. And then the drawing starts, and those are based off the theme ideas that maybe you might come up with images in your brain or doing uh, research on the computer, or Google, whatever. And you find themes that feel right for the project that might not have anything. Oh, what's a waterfall got to do with uh, you know, the back end of a car? it's the motion of the waterfall. It's the calmness of the water before it goes over the edge. And then it's all hell breaks loose. So can I interpret that calmness at the front to everything, all hell breaking loose at the rear end of the car, you start to get this feeling and this idea and this inspiration and you can translate that. So I'm not saying we all have to get inspired by certain things, but there's a lot of things for designers who are, Constantly, they, designers will never just look in one direction. They're the, you'll know a designer by his head; just you know, his senses are on. And, 
Are you like one of those, like whenever I see, like I've got a little nephew who's like three mm. and because he's seeing everything for the first time, he walks down the street yeah. and he just stops and it's like, oh, what's that? And then like yeah. you know, picks it up. Are, are uh, you, you like that everywhere? You nailed it there, Sam, because the one element that most designers have that we've all lost or most people have lost from their youth is that one element that is responsible in the first place for creativity, which is curiosity. Mm. You can't just turn the creative button on. You have to start before with what I always called curiosity. You have to be curious to learn, to, to understand something. And that generates the creativity later. So, you know, uh, all these companies asking, how do we make our departments more creative? Well, <laughs> start by being curious and then you go to being creative. But yeah, the kids have that when we're all born, we're all like that. And regretfully, as we mature, a lot of the professions out there or a lot of people just tend to lose that element of wonder, that sense mm. of wonder that makes everything so exciting for little kids. And uh, designers tend to be grown up children kind of thing. You know, they're, they're kids that never really grew up <laughs> in that world of fascination of creating things that yeah. don't exist. So it's a perfect typical trait of a designer. Oh, it's very cool. Yeah. When um, So when you went to McLaren, you mm. Essentially, you did you you started a new design language because there wasn't really one before. Or, yeah, well, yeah, started new one. Yeah, I started from scratch because the last thing you can do when you're in that level there is you see so many products that look like other products and, yeah. and uh, at all levels. You know, you can say that even very nice watches tend to look the same mm-hmm. times things, yeah. but you know, at that level there, you just you cannot risk. The, the, the company starting out with that kind of reputation of McLaren can never be accused of copying somebody else. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very cheap way to design. So I think, I think you have to push yourself in this fact that, you know, it's, it's not easy to create a design language that is accepted quickly or that has a reason to be, mm. or is distinctly enough to be called its own design language. Um, and again, that comes from research. You know, you just don't start drawing and come up with language. It's you have to research what's out there already and what not to do and, and what what loopholes there are in design that allow you to do something that not only is different, but is better. So you can you can add a lot of elements, but you can also take away a lot of elements to create that new new design language. And with engineering from BM, from McLaren being uh, extremely technology oriented with racing and all that, there's a lot to learn that we could apply to yeah. the automotive design language. Yeah. The, um, I always find it interesting. So when the, the 12C came out, mm-hmm. I think it was it MP4 12C at the time, I think, and there seems to be like a, a period of time for people to get used to a new shape, a new design. And yeah. quite often a car will come out and, You'll go, mm, I'm not sure. Or like, I think it's good. I don't know. And yeah. then I'll, then five years later, 10 years later, like if I look back at it now, I think it's an amazing looking car. Yeah. It took me a long time to sort of adjust, know, adjust to that. Yeah. Where it's like, as a designer, do you, how, how on earth do you just go, this is, you know, I think this is very good because of X, Y, Z, and this is my vision. Yeah. And hopefully everyone else will catch up. Or is there like, you somehow have to meet, Joe Blog's expectations. Uh, you have to, you have to, I, I wouldn't call it having a big head, but you have to believe in yourself. You know, you have to have that kind of confidence where you, and designers typically don't have thick skin. You have to develop thick skin over a career. Mm. It doesn't happen that way. It's, it's an oxymoron. A designer with thick skin is like, what? That doesn't, they don't <laughs> go together because designers are so sensitive to criticism and all that. But 
I think it's it's based on experience. Basically, if you tend to get the uh, if you tend to get it right most of the time, then you can start to believe in yourself. And uh, and, and again, don't start believing in yourself too soon because <laughs> then you are overconfident, <laughs> and that's when when things go incredibly wrong. But yeah, developing a, a new design language for a company is is tough, obviously, because as as people say, most things already have been done. Most things look similar to something else. But again, what what I discovered is a, a, a personal fascination of mine is biology. I've always had this, you know. I don't if I probably wasn't a designer. I've probably gone into something that has to do with nature and biology and that. But what I've discovered is that a lot of the inspiration that we as designers get does not come from what we call intelligent sources. You know, you can get inspired by just about anything to design something else. And there's this cross industry innovation thing that's getting bigger at the moment where you bring different experts from different uh, industries in to work on a certain project that they're not, directly experts at but what most people designers tend to get influenced by is trendy influences things that are in and out you know things that last for a couple years and then something else comes along that can be architecture that could be furniture it can be fashion uh whatever but what i've tend to always believe all my life is that intelligent design and influences come from nature you know there's no uh, nothing in nature that is designed just to be beautiful, you know, and it has no other purpose. Everything in nature is basically has to survive, you know, it's survival of the fittest, as we call it. If it doesn't, basically something else comes over and takes over it. So uh, there's an intelligent reason why things in nature are the way they are. And so, I mean, when's the last time you criticized something in nature and said it's not pretty? That's ugly. You know, <laughs> something natural. We do it all day with industrial objects. That's not very nice or whatever. But in nature, you probably know it's tough to criticize. I think it's born to appreciate forms like that. Yeah, I think it's genetic. You know, it's it's also a proof that uh, in our taste I and mean, whatever, you know, if that's genetic or not, that things seem naturally uh, uh not shocking when you see them for the first time in nature. They, they're interesting. They don't turn you off. So in that respect, if you can find that kind of inspiration in nature, then you're, then, you know, you'll have that sort of, it's, it's, it's nice. It's new. I've never seen it before, but it doesn't, doesn't scare me off. It doesn't repel me or Mm. uh, turn me off. So when you're designing a, a new design language, obviously design for purpose is one of the top, things that at least in supercar design it is because you're working with performance uh, variables and things. So you have to get it right from a performance and uh, dynamic point of view, but I've never seen a, 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 a race car, a pure race car that is not, not attractive. They all have their attractiveness yeah. in, a, in a certain way. You know, it's like saying, you know, they don't, they don't all look the same, you know, it's oftentimes that you could say birds all all do the same thing. They fly, but they all look different, you know, so there's no one yeah. perfect solution. You can have all kinds of different shapes. But I think with McLaren, with what you said with the MP4-12C, the objective there was not to come out with something that that basically shook the world, you know, grabbed the bull by the horns and said, look, this is a whole new ball game for McLaren and we're going to revolutionize the design world and everything. It was about establishing credibility with the first product such that it, it looked convincing as a supercar design. It wasn't a Versace looking type of object. It was more British, you know, very clean cut, 
uh, tailored almost and, and, and athletic and at the same time. Um, and that I think was the first major important building block for the design language. Obviously that came out, it got plus minus reviews on the aesthetics, but nobody really criticized it for being unattractive. It just looked yeah. like it did the job and that stood the test of time still does. And now with, after that, obviously we've been able to, well, the design language with McLaren stretched immediately after that with the P1 and all the cars that came after that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember when um, one of my friends, uh, when the P1 came out, <laughs> when he saw it, he was just like, take my money. And he ordered one straight away. Really? He didn't, oh. I think at the time he didn't even know the price. He was like, this is deposit, absolute yeah. baller. So there's that side of it, which is creating a car. And the P1 is one of the mo- mo- modern cars, i say in the last you know 10 years or whatever. Sure, it's just sure. like standout, astounding, looks like a complete design i think if you looked at the competitors at the time I, i'm a massive porsche fan so i like porsche but the la ferrari was this weird kind of clam thing it's, mm. i don't know a bit of a weird front back situation yeah um but like the p1 at that time i think everyone university said as a design i love the design and it's a very complete design yeah but we've sort of moved on in the mclaren ethos yeah since, since you've left yeah and um they we started hearing this thing uh, sort of like, I can't, remember, I can't remember the exact terms, but it was like performance first or, you know, engineering over aesthetics. It was like this yeah. thing of using, saying, we need, we've designed stuff to be fast and that's almost the excuse as to why it's not necessarily good looking. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Uh, yeah, I see where you're going. I mean, yeah, I, I, obviously, yeah. I don't want to talk bad about Anybody, I, I just, my basic understanding of design is there's no uh, excuse for ugliness in this day and world where we can control every surface and we can tune every surface. So uh, there are no excuses for cars that are, are considered unattractive. You know, if you blame it on the performance, well, there are certainly enough cars out there that perform exceptionally that don't go down yeah. the hit by the ugly stick route. So, Yeah. I mean, we have to remember these cars, especially the road cars, especially cars like what you're referring to, are cars that have to be sold and are seen on the road and represent the brand. So this cars are emotional. Nobody needs a car like that. You know, you no, buy it out of pure all. lust, pure desire. Yeah. Okay, so you're accepting a huge compromise if your wife, you know, uh, cooks really well, <laughs> but she doesn't look very nice. That's compromising. So yeah, but she can cook like the best. Okay. <laughs> well, you, if that's what you're looking for. Great. But typically um, it's an emotional purchase and you want to fall in love with the product. And, you know, it's that typical thing. I think, I can't remember who said it, but they once said that if you're not, you know, you have to, you have to lust after the vehicle. It's it's an emotional product. Uh, as, as most people, not there are not petrol heads. Think we're a bit nuts, but but there is this this element of sensual lust for a product like that. It's a moving object. You know, you're in control. You can control this moving object, but it's got a kind of a mind of its own, a character of its own, and you have that. You need to have that feeling. I can't wait to get to it in the morning, and I don't want to leave it at night. I'm staring at this thing. And I'd rather park it in my living room than have a TV or whatever. So that's the kind of feeling that we have to have with, with cars, obviously with any product that you buy, but typically with cars, they're, they're at that level when they're performance based, you know, 
I mean, there are so many lustworthy cars, performance cars in, in the history of racing. And, and again, the, the ones that don't look good, it's almost like they, well, yeah, okay, we didn't spend enough time on that side of it. We just were interested in, in performance. Well, performance can look beautiful. It doesn't detract from the look of a car. Yeah. Nature, anything that performs at the high end looks awesome, you know? And so there's, there's a rule of proportions and a rule of surfacing that as cars that we sell to the public, we should never break because those cars, at the end of the day, I think you need a combination of beauty and performance to become iconic. And if you're not setting out at that level to design an iconic product, you shouldn't be doing the project at all because it's, it's a temporary project. The yeah. ones that last, you know, 250 GTO, I mean, there's so many of them, but mm. back then they were lustworthy. And today they're, they're even more lustworthy. And, you know, it's raw performance and okay you know a tenth of a tenth of a second might make a difference to somebody but it doesn't make any difference to me <laughs> on <laughs> road yeah no I, I want something that you know i can't take my eyes off and that performs like that at the same time so yeah i think in the moment we're in this slightly weird phase where there's and a lot of companies are doing it where they're designing cars sort of with their heads and going well we think we can sell x car to mm. X people, and therefore we're going to build a car into that slot rather than like come up with this actually cool project, mm. cool car design ethos. They're like, oh, we reckon we can sell 300 cars with no roof or whatever, like whatever it is at yeah. the moment. You know, yeah. people are buying cars over $2 million. We're going to make some cars over $2 million. Like, and then they just go, they think about it, they do the calculations, and then they produce the car. Yeah. But like you said, like the buyers, buyers are not those people you don't no one needs these cars no yeah. one needs to spend an obscene amount of money yeah. on a road car that's performance is so out of the realms of road cars yeah like you've got to get the heartstrings totally you- agree. hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I totally agree. I mean, at that level, when you're paying, I mean, the basic, you know, car that we use to go to work in and we drop the kids off and you know get around and all that. Okay. That, that car, you buy it because you need it, but you're not going to buy it if you don't like the look of it. You know, it's a representation of you and, and typically, okay, there are tastes that you might not like it and somebody else might like it, but they are emotional purchases. You know, you do, you do have to go in and say, okay, I like the, I like the look of that car. Now, can you tell me about it? Yeah. You, know, you don't go in and say, uh, what's the miles per gallon, blah, blah, blah. And then say, mm, okay, now let me think about the looks of it. 
It actually happens the other way around. People have to understand that from a company point of view, design sells, good design sells, bad design does not sell. And then therefore becomes more expensive because you've, you know, you, you've put lipstick on a pig basically. Yeah. And for some reason it's not selling or it's not doing what it should be as it was forecast. So I think design is, is this in this day and age, much, much, much more important than ever before. And that's what happens. You get a lot of design companies and studios trying too hard and what they're actually doing is is trying to create that shock value where, okay, we know it's not the prettiest, but isn't it shocking and different? And you're like, yeah. But that's, <laughs> it's like, I want something nice. I don't care if it, uh, you know, it's not the new, absolute new age, cutting yeah. edge design trend where everything starts to look like a cyber truck, you know, a Tesla. And you think, wow, yeah, it's not pretty, but it's awesome because you know, <laughs> nobody's ever done it before. Yeah, well, there's a reason why they never did it before. So, yeah, mm. you should never, no one should ever have to explain yeah. the car to you before you've said, I'm interested. Like, yeah. you walk yeah. in and go, Ooh, what's that? And I then them so. explain how awesome it is. Yeah, yeah, the it's kind of doesn't sell. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, Sam, the thing is, we get used to anything, you know, like, like when the Tesla, like I mentioned, the Cybertruck came out and people were like, Oh, wow. <laughs> after six months, we were like, calm down, like, Yeah, okay, but. I don't know if I really want to have this car for three years or five years, you know? Um, So you got to, that love at first sight is so important for anything you purchase. You know, you can't buy something and think, you know, I'm not used to it yet. I will in six months. I'll get used (laughs) to it. And that ain't love at first sight. That's not how we, we as humans are are genetically uh, evolved. I've totally done that with like, all things like whether it's a watch whether it's a coffee table or whatever you're like i need something for that there this usage uh, and you just yeah. buy something but you don't necessarily love it five yeah. years time you get rid of it because yeah you found yeah, something you yeah. actually truly Tough. like it's that it's that emotional connection you mentioned before yeah. there's got to be a you know an attraction basically it's talking to you and it's like buy me buy me and you're like yeah 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 you gotta it's, it's the um you know that hidden thing that we've never found that's a, that's the east the golden egg i guess in yeah. design yeah. With with car design now, I think we're almost going back as something I talked to that guy Niels Van Roy about as was oh, into the right. coach building sort of stage of the yeah. back in the day where you'd get given a chassis and then you put your design on top. Mm. We're sort of getting to the point where all supercars and all modern cars, whether if they're electric especially, it's one powertrain and then mm. whatever you want put on top. Yeah, coach building. So, Absolutely. So we're getting to this design-led, you know, you can have any design you want now yeah. pretty much because the performance is all going to be the same. Yeah, that's that's where we're heading with these electric cars, which are taking the soul out of the car, basically. But a whole new generation is coming coming up now that actually doesn't mind that. They're more interested in the experience. A lot of the newer generations, you know, the young teenagers are like, well, I don't want to own a car in the first place. I don't mm. want to go through all those the hassle of owning and selling and maintaining the car so basically i just want to get from here to there really quick and really comfortable so the petrol head thing is shrinking you know but it's never we're never going to lose it i think there's always going to be a desire I mean, look how many people are into classics and old timers yeah. still you know and you know, i mean the government can shut it down but they can't completely shut it down so that there will always be an interest in in the mechanical side of the of the automobile because although a lot of the companies are tending, even the higher end ones are tending to go down the electric route or even the hybrid route. It's, it's losing a little bit of the pureness of what an automobile is in the first place. Mm. It's an advanced automobile and there's a lot of 
technology in it to make it uh, incredibly um, attractive for a segment. But I think, you know, you listen to a, you know, a V12 uh, changing up the gears on, a, on an open motorway or something. Uh, that, that gives you goosebumps and it doesn't do it. The, the goosebumps you get from a electric car going from zero to 60 is like turning a light switch on. Okay. It's over. You know, wow. That, that was exciting. You know, G forces, but the <laughs> car's kind of fizz. There's yeah. Fizz. You don't, you don't, you want the tires to screech and you yeah. want that G force and the, t- the cars fighting to keep in the corner. And, and that, that's, that's what emotional driving is about. And obviously there's a whole segment of people that, why would you want to race a car? I just want to get to there. And that's, that's the kind of generation that don't mind these electric cars. That's fine. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you know there's choices for everybody, but I personally, as a, you know, gearhead, petrol head, I, I want the five senses to be stimulated when I'm inside of a car or when yeah. I'm driving a car. Do you think we're going to see some, some radical changes in car design because mm. of as soon as we get driverless cars or, you know, yeah. this sort of shift? Yeah. Oh, there will definitely be radical changes. Definitely. I think the interior designers are going to become more valued almost than not valued, but more important than, than what the exterior design yeah. communicates because it's going to take us a while to get to autonomous to what we call level five driving, where you can yeah. fully trust the car to, to, to make the decisions and stay safe and all that. And you can basically turn around and face backwards. That's, that's not going to happen too soon simply because of the, um, the complexity of it. There's a yeah. lot of issues and it'll happen in the sky before it happens on the ground where we get rid of drivers and pilots and things. But at the same time, it will, I can all, we know it has to basically place a lot more importance on the interior of the vehicle in the sense of being able to, to select the mood or the environment that you want that interior to do specifically for you. And hopefully they don't completely get rid of the driving aspect. I mean, it can be offered that, you know, some cars are fully autonomous, but a lot of us who still want to do the driving part can pick and choose, I think. So that, that will be another part of the design where you can say, okay, the car can take over now. It's on the, on yeah. the motorway and that's, you know, there's a bit of traffic. I don't want to be bothered with that. So I just, you know, study or work or sleep or whatever, but the whole environment, when you start to do that becomes much more important. So there's going to be a, it's almost like visioneers instead of designers or engineers. We're going to be thinking of new ways to create <clears throat> sort of an environment within the vehicle that suits your needs, whether it's, uh, you know, four people sitting in a car having a meeting while the car is traveling to yeah. where you're entertaining your friends on, on a trip like that to where you just want to rest and, you know, long distances, you just want to take a break and rest inside the vehicle. All kinds of situations that you can think of that will start to become the important uh, deciding factors. I think when you do purchase a vehicle, if you purchase a vehicle, because it can ride sharing and, and sharing a vehicle or just using a vehicle for a temporary amount of time is going to grow also in terms of mobility. So uh, share ride sharing, things like that, uh, especially because people in terms of mass transport, I think that's shrinking. Obviously people, um, are aware of dangers of mass transport, yeah. uh, and this not to say that the last three or four months have going to you know changed society in terms of transportation forever, but there is a concern out there that when you travel in less numbers, you're you're a bit safer than when you travel in yeah. high volume, high density. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned was the use of autonomous in the sky, and I know mm. you're involved with some transport stuff in the air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
in terms of the tech of that stuff, so basically a vehicle that will take you from one place to another in the air, uh, take off and land in one space, that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, I, from my understanding, the biggest technology barrier, barrier we've had has been like fuel and weight and stuff like that. Mm, payload, um, yeah. And as uh, presumably we're getting there with that. Yeah, the whole thing is the battery, battery tech, obviously, yeah. because at the moment, these vehicles are not meant to replace uh, planes, obviously, because of long distances, you know, uh, transcontinental flight. Batteries are the, um, are, are the, the uh, limits to what these planes can actually do. Um, you can build up, you can generate a lot of speed, but how long can you be going, you know, at that speed for? Yeah. So your radius, your daily radius of, of life can be a lot greater than it is today. So, for example, um, with we, we call them EV toll aircraft, electrical vertical takeoff and landing, and they're probably not even probably very likely to be the um, the next big move in, in mobility because obviously tra- traffic density is is at the cracking point now or the fracturing point in a lot of cities, big cities. And, you know, the delays that that incurs when you're not sure you're going to get to somewhere on time and you know, anything can happen on the road. So if we can avoid that, then there, it must be a better way of transportation. So EV toll aircraft allow point to point flying. So in a very close place to where you're living, you'll be able to, uh, like an Uber tech where you just basically go on your phone on an app and you call up an Uber and it comes and picks you up. That'd be so sick. (laughs) It's unbelievable, but it's actually coming. I mean, they haven't done obviously a lot of advertising because they're, it's still like what we call under the radar. No intended, but it is under the radar, but it's coming very, very, very soon in our lifetime. So people don't have to think we have, I'll never see that. Give it a few more years and you'll be shocked because it is something out of what we only ever seen in science fiction movies. So these planes that actually are capable of landing on hotel rooftops or parking wow. centers or wherever, wherever you have a, you know, anywhere between 10 and 15 square meters, you can land one of these as long as yeah. it's flat and not too dusty. Um, but basically it's a, it's a ride in, uh, you know, you, you call it up, it lands, you get in, it rises up vertically to anywhere between say 300 and 3000 meters. So about yeah. Thousand feet to ten thousand feet, which is where you operate without pressurized cabins. Okay, yeah, they're electric. They're very silent, so you wouldn't even know if you looked up if there was one up in the sky unless you actually saw it. Um, the legislation is going to allow them to drive or fly over cities, so you'll be flying as the crow flies. In other words, very yeah. very direct, and you'll know when you take off, pretty much the second where you'll be arriving. Uh, so it's it's yeah. a very calculable flight time incredibly enjoyable from the experiences i've had on vr so far mm. um because you know every, everything is still there for you to see you're just a little bit higher than than the skyscrapers um and, and it's it's an enjoyable flight it's comfortable um you know you have to meet the needs of anybody who would typically be a vip taking a, a taxi to the airport or a ride to the airport yeah. <clears throat> They'll be doing this system, and so it has to suit that type of person. But on the cost side, it has to meet the budget of a student, for example, who's just you know I got to get here. And so it's it's a it's a it's a type of mobility for every every person, every class. It's classless. Obviously, do you think you can it's going to reach super, that budget. Sorry, of, do you think it's going to reach the budget of like everyone? Absolutely. Up around? Oh no, no, absolutely. That's the surprising thing about this that on a cost study basis of of the finance, the economics of it. 
it's about half the price. A journey on a full flight, say five to ten people on board, yeah. is about half the price of a of a Uber on the road doing the same really? journey. Why would wow. you not use it? Yeah. Why would you not use it? And again, the factor of safety. These things have to be before they're flight certified. They have to reach what's called the ten to the minus ninth reliability factor, and and that's coming. They're they're already coming honing in on, mm. on that number. If you think a plane is ten to the minus sixth, right? Okay, that's significant. I could go into detail of how many hours of flying per one accident or uh, catastrophic yeah. episode. But ten to the minus ninth, there's nothing out there that's as safe as ten to the minus ninth. I don't even think walking down a busy street yeah. is 10 to the minus ninth. So they do that by redundancy. So not one single point of failure on an air, on one of these vehicles will cause a catastrophic incident. So well, there's always a backup system in place. So what will happen is basically you can fly this knowing that you're going to get to your destination uh, safe and quickly and about the half price of a, of an Uber Amazing. and point to point. So you're not taking, you know, a route like that. So it's, it's, it, I mean, I was, as doubtful as anybody when I heard about it, but yeah. as I got into the industry and saw what level we're all at, and there's a lot of competition companies competing to be the first one to the market, mm-hmm. but they're all basically there. They're getting there through the testing phases and uh, working alongside the certification agencies and it's coming. So trust me, we'll, That's amazing. it won't be our kids. It'll be us flying in these things pretty soon. I, um, I have an uncle who builds, large drones in his background oh, cool. in, in yeah. his garden and um his aim is to build one they start the site be used for commercial stuff and things like that but uh, that he can get in and it will fly him somewhere and i was yeah. like why the hell would you do this and, he, and then he explained the safety yeah. relative to a helicopter like yeah. a helicopter's got like one gearbox or whatever if that blows you are going down in a really nasty way it's called a single point of failure. Blows up, you're you're dead. Whereas all <laughs> oh. these drones that might have like whatever yeah. it is, thirty motors, that's mm. thirty things that if one of them goes, you've still got twenty nine, and Absolutely. then you can do stuff yeah. with the battery and whatever, and you don't have very many moving parts. Yeah, and I was I started thinking, I was like, okay, actually, that sounds significantly safer, even though then, it seems mad. And then Sam, what you can do is you can you don't have to. You're working in the city, for example. You're working in London, mm. where you know, uh, cost of a, of a, a small apartment is exorbitant. Well, yeah. and it takes you, you know, half an hour to get to work, even though you're living in the city. Well, you could move out to Princess Risborough or yeah. somewhere way out there where the cost of living is much cheaper and you can still get to the office in probably yeah. five minutes on one of these yeah. <laughs> for the price of the tube. So, you know, that there's no, it's a no brainer. It's really, there's no That's infrastructure. Amazing. It's just a landing pad. Uh, a vehicle that can fly without a pilot if if they want to start that. They won't start without – it's not even a pilot. It's more like a controller, somebody that yeah. keeps you calm while it's flying. <laughs> but basically, at some point, they'll get rid of the pilots because they don't need pilots to tell the yeah. plane, go up this high, go down this flight corridor, and yeah. land there. That's all computer control. There's no room for error in there yeah. where pilots get confused. You know, which way was I going? Where am I? <laughs> Yeah, you just got to avoid other objects other than that. Yeah. Well, there won't be too many of them. I mean, it's not like they'll be private and people be buying their own. It's yeah. all controlled and, you know, pilots or the people running these are actually yeah. uh, companies are not privately sold like we saw in Fifth Element or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it won't be it's like sound- we'll have lots of them up in the sky. It anymore. sounds so cool. Yeah. Now, I'm, yeah. I'm aware that we, we've only got about an hour. So yeah. I wrap these up with five questions and I want to sure. get them in. So. 
first question do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey uh I had an incredible journey not too long ago, which was along the garden route of South Africa. So uh, I'd never been down there, and I was able to go from Jayburg Jay down to the coast and then all the way along to South uh, to Cape Town. So I really, really enjoyed that. I've done – I mean, my drives – I've obviously driven <laughs> quite a bit, but I've had drives from Vancouver up to Whistler, mm. which were absolutely mind-blowing in the right car – down uh, high, uh, the the um, PCH Pacific Coast Highway uh, from Northern California down to Southern L- uh, Southern California along the uh, coast that was memorable to the extreme. You know the the mountain passes in the Alps going from Austria down into Italy. Yeah, they're they're all stunning in their own ways. I can't say one is better than the other one, but Lots but of good each ones. one. And and uh, what makes it even more fun is when you get to use a car that. You know, it's like playing a song on a guitar. It's nicer when you play it on a an amazing guitar than when you just <laughs> yeah, play yeah. a normal guitar. So the song is great, but the the guitar is makes it great too. So it's got to be an extra couple of percent. Guitar. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, five car garage, unlimited value. <laughs> Good point. Oh my gosh, uh, unlimited value. Yeah. So let's start with the cheap ones first. The Jaggy type. <laughs> <laughs> series one 4.2 so not the very first ones because i need the 4.2 i need yeah. more torque and fixed head then i would probably go with an alpha 33 just because i want to sleep with it but i've never could. <laughs> <laughs> at least i could sleep in it so uh those are the first two that probably aren't super expensive yeah. then i would probably i would have to stick a p1 in there uh yeah. not, not for value or anything like that but it's because i felt like in the studio obviously with our team i'm not going to say i you know i designed the darn yeah. thing but basically uh i i witnessed the birth the creation and birth of this amazing car that yeah and it was the car that kicked off mclaren really well so the p1 has to be in there then i would probably go with gosh um i, I don't want to name too many old cars because it's very easy to go back and that's fine. Pick high end. Well, then we can go back with a Talbot Lago. Good to however you say that in French. That water drop <laughs> car that costs about thirty five million. So oh, yeah, that. yeah. It's two tone. Typically, it's two tone, but sometimes it's just in that maroon, deep dark maroon. That All is right. pure lust of a vehicle for me. I mean, that car. If you drove it anywhere, I think anybody's knees. Anybody's yeah. needs, kids, women, grandmothers, their knees would go wobbly just looking at something like that rolling down the road. Yeah, you know, seriously covering, cool. Oh, it's just crazy. So that's the third one. The other car is there's only one of them out there. I hate I hate saying all sports cars, but they're the ones that, you know, the combination of the sound and the looks and everything else like that. It's, it's so the other one, after. sorry? I was just saying it's what you lost after. Well, the XJ13, you remember the one that uh, Dewey crashed when doing oh, a yeah. test? So that was basically one of the sexiest. It's kind of one of those cars you don't know where the front, where the back is, or which yeah. is the front, yeah. or which is the back. But it's just pure lust worthy. It's only it's like there's only one of them, or there really, really there was only one of them. And then they've made kit cars out of them and things. Mm. But but that car was just raw. Oh, and talking about raw, give me an F40 any day. <laughs> um, I mean, a string to open the door with, but my gosh, that's what a, what a, what a fascination of a car for me. That's, that was basically, you didn't get guys building that car or thinking about making that car that were worried about making money. They were just worried about making 
not even worried. They had fun making this incredible race yeah. car for the road kind of, and, and it wasn't even in that great of a car. I mean, you put it next to anything else today and it probably doesn't measure yeah. halfway up the scale of, of them, but for pure Italian, Italian beauty and rawness. And, you know, it's that woman that's dressed to kill at 9am mm. that comes into the office and you think, but that's what the f40 kind of reminds me of it's got high heels on it at at 9 a.m kind of approach you've done loads you've definitely i haven't done loads i got one more that i have to put in there just just because i again it's another sports car i mean i i I love cars that aren't sports cars too i got maserati bora turns me on for some reason um not the Mirac, the bora but the top of top of top of the list no doubt, but I'm sure a lot of people will agree with me on this one. Has to be the F1, and, yes. and if, if possible, a very special version, obviously GTR or something, or the F1 yeah. McLaren F1, just for that pureness of of engineering. And, and when you say pureness, you got to wonder why they put Volkswagen bits and pieces on it, on a car <laughs> like that. But if if people who know the car, they know what I'm talking about. It's it's a component in some aspects because the engine, obviously, is a BMW yeah. and stuff. But if you can assemble a a bag of, it's not assembled. I don't want to give it that kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's designed with pureness of thought, but it's, it's pretty much the ultimate raw supercar. I mean, it's, it's not uh, naturally aspirated, which means a lot or, for a driver. Um, it's, it's mechanical, obviously it's analog. And, and um, I think it merits being called the, the car, the supercar of the 20, 20th century. Totally. Um, F1 GTR. Tick. Yeah. Them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? Undervalued car? Yeah. I mean, an interesting one for me always, and it hasn't really risen in value, but I mean, I can, I don't understand why it never rose in value because it's, they don't make them anymore. Mm. It's unique. It's, it's known out there. It's, uh, but that would have to be the DeLorean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get them pretty cheap. You can. But imagine driving a DeLorean around. People are like, "Where did you get that?" I bought it for seventy-five thousand bucks. <laughs> Some guy, you know, had it in his backyard. And I mean, that car has a lot of well, not a lot of history, but but a lot of stories. It you sort can of does. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. It's <laughs> iconic. It's like this crazy design. Very yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard they're a bit just rubbish as car, as an actual car. But like, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, the guy, now. the guy who designed the first Golf Volkswagen Golf, is the guy who designed the DeLorean. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. the first Volkswagen Golf, the guy who designed that, oh. designed the uh, the DeLorean. And I'll tell you what else he designed. <laughs> he designed the Fiat Panda. Oh, <laughs> right. And you're probably like, who is it? It wouldn't be anybody famous. <laughs> This guy who designed that car is voted by many as by a lot of people as the designer of the of the 20th century, the oh, car designer. What's his name? Giorgetto Giugiaro. Okay, easy one to say. Nah, yeah, he's, he's his famous Pininfarina. He's the yeah. uh he's the equal kind of guy, but it's one yeah, yeah. guy. Pininfarina is a few brothers and you know. <laughs> but oh, Giugiaro is, is famous for a, a lot of super hot sports cars of yeah. the uh of the 60s and the 70s and he's also done very very normal cars but really well proportioned obviously mm. Italian but Giugiaro if you've never heard of him he's oh, yeah, uh, check him out he's every design designer buddy designers you know he's the guy that sits at the top yeah. who's kind of like 
Buddha or (laughs) (laughs) you guys who are listening to this know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Jujaro. You got to say it like that. (laughs) Jujaro. Okay. Right. Last question. What is the most interesting car to you at the moment? What are you giggling? What are you looking up? Uh, Interesting car for me at the moment in terms of technology, in terms of technology would have to be the Koenigsegg Gamera. Oh, yes. Because it's something that hasn't really ever been done before. There are a lot of sports car companies doing uh, all the hyper stuff and all the electronic stuff and beating each other to death to get to under one second for this yeah. you know, zero to 60, <laughs> but they still can't do it. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. The Jamera because, or Gamera, uh, Koenigsegg, uh, because it brings a new slant to the segment where, okay, it's a hybrid. So, but the little engine it's got is incredible. It runs on uh, alcohol, believe it or not, alcohol fuel. So that's that's interesting as a perspective to how to power a ICE engine, and then on the other hand, it's running a, a very interesting uh, electronic uh, system of, of powering the car. Mm. So you're getting a GT esque car. I don't know if you could call it a GT, but it's what they call it. So it's a GT esque car and four seater. Might be a bit compromised in packaging in the back, but okay, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> but four bespoke seats. Um, Looks like a Koenigsegg, which is a good thing because Koenigsegg have their own look, you know, kind of like that, yeah. the the f- car with the front visor where, you know, it's kind of, their packaging is really interesting. It's uh, kind of like tunnel vision where if you stop at a stoplight in the U.S. with a, with a Koenigsegg, you, you're you lost. You don't know what the stoplights are. You have to do one of those things and that's kind of not great packaging, but it is, it is Koenigsegg's one of their design yeah. characteristics, which make it look pretty interesting. But yeah, I would say the, uh, the Gamera simply because of the move forward in four seat single door there's a one yeah. door on each side, which is really incredible. But the way it opens up a pretty big door, the way it opens up is, is pretty cool. And yeah, the attention to detail is, is awesome. Uh, it's a bit loud uh, from a styling point of view on the inside, but refined loud and refined. If that oxymoron makes Isn't any it, sense. It's the most sort of, striking new design i've seen in a, a long time just like like you said com- like creating its own segment yeah like all of this yeah. stuff yeah i would well, never say i know some people are like uh, no I, a lot of people are probably saying oh you're gonna say the tesla cyber truck the says just to give my opinion out there on the tesla cyber truck i'm embarrassed for the car design world for the <laughs> uh for the uh ideas of one genius because he is a genius to put something like that out there and say that this is what they're going to present to us. First of all, it doesn't look like a Tesla. Okay. They can say, okay, it doesn't, why, why do we have to keep a family feeling within our design language? Because that is a boring approach. So we're doing something to shock you, but I swear I've seen kids design cars prettier than the Tesla. You just need a straight edge, a sharp pencil, or even a dull pencil, or maybe a pencil with a lead broke off. You can still do it. But that car is basically the, insult of design sensitivity lacks good proportions lacks surface entertainment or visual entertainment it's impressive in only the fact that it is kind of like a triangular wheel on a car you know why would you do that (laughs) so i i just don't i just don't understand how somebody could lust after a, a box or pyramid or whatever you want to call it. It's geometric shape. There's no humans like 
sensual looking objects or curvy. I wouldn't say curvy because, you know, there's lots of types of curves and things, but we don't typically feel a love, a long lasting love for objects that are extremely angular like that. So again, maybe I should soften my approach to a little bit, but I, I just see a minority of the public liking a vehicle in that direction. Totally. Totally. Well, mm. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Pick yeah. your brain. Thanks, Sam. And I'll, I will, I will let you go to your next meeting. Next meeting. <laughs> yeah, she's coming. I can hear it. <laughs> Good. Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks very much. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.